welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We are talking about what is wrong with the healthcare system tonight. Do I stay or do I go? Do I keep it or let it go? We are also talking the hard truth about transitions in time for fall. Also, we're tackling the sensitive subject of misinformation and both-sidedism with Timothy Caulfield. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. I'm sure you've seen her on global TV. Julie Nolan is a brilliant and highly accomplished journalist in Vancouver, a 33-year veteran originally from Alberta. She's an anchor and reporter with Global News, doing hundreds of stories on education, parenting, and health all along the way. So when she found out she had breast cancer in July, this mom of two adult sons was more than shocked as she was always on top of the issues around her dense breast tissue. She wasn't just shocked, though. She was disappointed. And she was disappointed with our healthcare system. And when you think things can't get any worse, alongside countless media colleagues, in addition to the current fight for her life, she found herself in the crosshairs of online criminal harassment and stalking on social media. She joins me on the line this evening. Good evening, Julie. Hi, Maureen. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm a longtime fan. Oh, thank you so much. Well, right back at you. I'm a big fan of yours, and I am so grateful that you're sharing your story tonight um, on the program. And as I always say, when women share their stories, they empower other women. So thank you so much. Um, and I'm first question, how are you sound great? How are you feeling? Well, I'm doing remarkably well. Um, my oncologist said, trust me, uh, there's no real thing to fear here with the chemotherapy um there is uh, a hollywood chemotherapy um but hey you can do this um i've been through two chemotherapy treatments uh i've done the red devil for anyone who knows um that particular regimen um and i started chemo on august 14th and i'm doing my third chemotherapy uh, this coming Wednesday, um, I have lost my hair. Um, I have had a lot of trouble with the nausea and the fatigue in, in the first week following each treatment, but I'm actually doing pretty well considering that. That's awesome. And on, on Terry Fox day with a heavy heart, you took to Twitter and shared personal news about your health and found out that you had an aggressive form of breast cancer triple positive invasive ductal carcinoma. Can you tell the listeners what exactly that means? Well, it's, you know, and this is something that I, you know, even though I've been reporting on health issues for so many years, just to learn about what kinds of cancer there are out there for breast Mm -hmm. uh, cancer in particular, it's very (laughs) um, extensive. And this particular type of cancer has not just the HER2 protein feeding it, but also my hormones. And that's what creates the triple positive um, diagnosis. So this particular cancer is very aggressive. I have uh, one main lump uh, in the center of my left breast and a second lump in my lymph node, which you know is is not a a great thing to, to, to learn. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And um, yes, you have, you tested positive for estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, and have higher than usual levels of HER2 protein. Um, But you're in good health, and you're young, and you're optimistic. I am. Yeah, I'm in my 50s, so I'm no spring chicken, but I am uh, I am very healthy, have been very much on top of my health um, my whole life. As I uh, was saying to some colleagues at work, I was always wearing sunscreen because I was worried about skin cancer um, and, you know, always doing whatever I could to take care of my health, eating right, um, exercising, uh, just was, it was a shocking diagnosis to hear um, because, yeah, you know, it's shocking for anybody, but I was very much on top of it because of my dense breasts as well. Right. And can you explain to the listeners what that means for a woman? Yeah, that just means that the the breast tissue is so dense that it is hard to detect cancer. 
um, in a in a screening, and it takes a lot of additional investigation for a radiologist to determine that that is indeed cancer that they're seeing. And uh, so I've been uh, going in for mammograms since I was in my mid-30s because I would have these strange inflammations that would, would pop up, lots of little occasions of, of lumps along the way. And every time um, I was going in to my doctor right away. But what is very unusual about my case is that I had experienced so many cases of mastitis even though I was no longer nursing, um, like five years after I last nursed, I was getting bouts of mastitis, and that started in my mid-30s. So here I am in my 50s and getting mastitis. And uh, I'm not sure why it would happen, but it was just always there. So, in fact, what happened in December is I had two instances of mastitis. And when I went into the doctor in January, I said, okay, like, um, this has happened again uh, for the umpteenth time. And here we were um, trying to to get to the bottom of what was going on. But there were two large lumps that I was presenting with. And just for the listeners um, to understand, mastitis is an inflammatory process of the breast tissue. And that sometimes involves an infection as well. And And it results in breast pain swelling, yes. uh, tenderness, warmth, redness. It's, it's not fun. <laughs> Ali, no. I understand. No, it's and very painful. It's, it's awful. Horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. And for any, any young mom who's had it, especially when you're nursing, it's, it's, it's very, very painful. And I had mastitis so many times in, uh, each, each time I had, um, a child, I have two sons. Um, and yes, it was, it was shocking to have to honestly uh, find out years later, okay, I've got another case of mastitis and I would have the very same thing that I had had uh, when I was nursing. And it was this very, you know, I would get redness, like a localized redness on my breast. And it would, it would just feel like my breasts were on fire. Um, and I would do everything that I could to try to calm it down and yes, even end up on antibiotics to treat it. Yes. And it's something we typically see, as you mentioned, with breastfeeding. So that's what brought you to the doctor. And next, you had some issues around, well, you mentioned in, um, on Twitter that you felt you fell through the cracks, that it took months to get the, to the diagnosis. Yes. And that was not for uh, the lack of having a family doctor, uh, because I do have a, a fantastic family physician. I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, here in BC. And uh, so I went into my doctor right away in January. Here I have these two lumps. um, And he right away gave me a requisition to go to a lab. And from there is where I slipped through the cracks because the lab kept directing me back to my doctor saying I had the wrong requisition. I had the wrong forms. Uh, We're, you know, we're not able to get you in. This is, you know, another, you know, two months wait, um, they kept putting me on the back burner. And I couldn't understand why when I'm presenting with a, a lump that's potentially in my lymph node, I didn't understand why I was being held back from, from being able to, to get a proper diagnosis. But yes, it took from January to almost May to get in and another five weeks to get the biopsy. And, you know, once you get a look at your records, I could see that they were already determining in May that it didn't look right, that they thought there was a malignancy in both of these. So, you know, that's that's where I feel like I slipped through the cracks, not just the, okay, you don't have the right form. You have to go back to your doctor. I had to go back twice. It was just a, a really frustrating situation for me, but I know I'm not alone. I know that other people experience this. Right. And it sounds like you had to advocate for yourself as well. Yes. I felt, yeah, I definitely felt as though along the way I had to push pretty hard. And even after uh, the, the first requisition wasn't the right one, you know, I'm going back and 
and I contacted this lab. Hey, I'm like, when can I get in? Can I get on a wait list or, you know, try to figure out how I can get going? And they just didn't have any solutions for me. No, sorry. You know, this is the state of things. You just, you're at the back of the line. Wow. Wow. Just so hard to deal with. And you must have just had tremendous worry that whole time, wondering. You can't really have peace of mind mind when no. you're waiting and worrying. You know it. It's, it's very um, disheartening uh, when you want to have faith in the system. But, like, here we are waiting this long. How much did this, this cancer grow? And I tried not to be afraid. And it wasn't my first time experiencing something like this. Like I say, going back to my mid-30s, had issues with these lumps previously. And yet this time seemed to be more worrisome and there was no action coming. So it's very important for all of us to advocate for ourselves. Julie Nolan is my guest. She is an anchor, our very own anchor and reporter with Global News. She's done hundreds of stories on education, parenting, and health along the way and has found herself in um, with a very difficult diagnosis, an aggressive form of breast cancer, a triple positive invasive ductal carcinoma. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Julie. Absolutely. Now, you had a big summer. You got married this summer as well to the love of your <laughs> life. Is that right? <laughs> I did. I mean, no better time, you know, to feel the deal, uh, you know, just as you get cancer. But we were so tired of waiting. We'd been waiting for four and a half years. And we just, uh, the the week of the diagnosis, I sat down beside him and I said, we just, we have to, we have to do this. We can, and no more waiting because I had a bad car accident that had stopped us from getting married and then the oh. uh, the pandemic so it was like okay no we're we're just gonna we're just gonna move forward as fast as we can with it we we were able to whip together a wedding and a reception in two weeks and then i wonderful started chemo yeah wow you've had quite the summer um and i your uh prognosis is i know in british columbia we have very high uh great outcomes for women diagnosed with breast cancer and i would imagine that's the same for you up into the high 80s 90s yeah i'm hoping i mean my oncologist is is very optimistic i mean even though this is an aggressive cancer uh the Mm -hmm. great thing about it is that it is uh just it, it responds very well to chemo and treatment in general. So, you know, I'm hoping that, yeah, I keep on, on this track that I can, I can beat this. Excellent. I'm certain you can, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Um, And as you know, women are just amazing. And as though that's not enough, planning a wedding in two weeks, um, (laughs) having (laughs) chemo, starting chemo, losing your hair, um, having a, horrific diagnosis. I mean, I know you're going to be fine at the end of all this, but it's tough Mm -hmm. to go through the chemo and surgery and radiation, that kind of thing. But in the midst of all of it, you found yourself in the crosshairs of online criminal harassment and stalking on social media. How much can one woman take? (laughs) That's kind of what my family is wondering as well. Um, And, you know, the, the sad reality is that there's no mercy, you know, from anyone who's stalking and harassing. And, you know, it's, it's just something I can't really speak too specifically on because it's mm-hmm. a, an open police matter, but it's been going on for quite a while. And I mean, years um, by someone, um, you know, who has, you know, made themselves known for quite a while. And it's, not unusual though and you know we know we know no yeah it isn't unusual right that's right yes absolutely it's it's so wrong and i you know i'm so grateful because i i you know on the flip side i have been sort of quietly trying to manage this for a while and you know with my family support i mean we've we've just tried to think of ways to ignore it and there's only so much you can do. Um, and it's been several years of this. So I just 
had, you know, I just felt like I had enough. I'd been to the police in the fall and I returned again uh, when it was back, uh, when this person returned. And uh, unfortunately for most of us, uh, this is par for the course. This is what, you know, we have to endure. And I personally have had this going on since the start of my career, 30, more than 30 years ago. And wow. I, I'm, I mean, I've had, had different things happen to me, but it's, it's just so accepted, um, I think, now on social media. And a lot of people are targeted. It's not just me, and it, and it isn't just women. But I do feel that, yes, as female journalists, as, you know, it, like in your case, I'm sure as well, it's, mm-hmm. it's just insane. I've had it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I tolerated it for about five seconds. <laughs> I went to the police immediately. And it, um, you know, that was, <laughs> was a bit of a keystone cop issue there, but I won't go into mine. Um, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Julie. I really appreciate you sharing your story and I'm, I wish you the best luck of everything. If you need anything, you know where I am. You have my contact information. Um, I'm happy to help you in any way. And, um, and I certainly hope they take care of that criminal that is harassing you. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I know I can kick uh, cancer's butt and, uh, you know, I've got a great, uh, village with me on this. So thank you for being a part of that. You're so welcome. And we'll check in with you down a few weeks down the road and see how you're doing. Get you back on the air. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take good care. We don't think of this time of year as out with the old and with the new, but given the fact that it is fall, it is a time of transition. My guest wrote a very beautiful and powerful blog about this very subject on her blog, I Covet. Larea Kazakoff joins me on the line. She's a blogger at I Covet. Good evening, Larea. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. Happy fall. Thank you so much. Not my favorite season. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I'm a summer girl. <laughs> Love well, the summer. it's not looking oh. nice. I know. It's not looking very nice out there either today. So. No, no, not really. But uh, but your blog was nice and beautiful, and it touched a lot of points. Um, first Thank of all, you. Luria, what, um, and and uh, you can go to icovet.ca to read this beautiful blog, and, and it's really about you basically decluttering, clearing out your closets, which we all Mm -hmm. tend to do at this time of year. Mm -hmm. Tell me what inspired you to write this. Well, I mean, we all know that the change of seasons, and for me, it's cleaning out the closet, and and that doesn't always happen every season, but, you know, here I started. And, you know, you kind of hang on to things, and, you know, as you do, you haven't worn this, and I haven't worn that. And for me, it was a couple items that had um, that were quite personal to me that I had been hanging on, not because I didn't wear them, but maybe for other reasons. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of evolved that way. I, I, I didn't set off to write a blog about cleaning a closet, but really it was just um, changing and transitioning for me. And, and, you know, one aspect of the blog was about a red dress, which I have to say looked fabulous on you. Uh, oh. <laughs> there's a picture. You. <laughs> you looked amazing in it. Um, but, you know, we hold on to these things because they hold memories for us or we think we're mm-hmm. going to get back into it. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, or it has it has a memory or it was so beautiful. Or we paid so much money for it. Um, exactly. You know, we, we have all these reasons. Why is it hard for us to let go? Well, for me, for this particular red dress that you're referring to, uh, it fit me, but it didn't fit who I am today. So, you know, that was 10 years ago. I was a different person. We evolved. And I think that was really telling. I'm looking at myself going, no, it's not. This isn't who I am anymore. And that's not to say I can't wear a sexy dress. I can, but that particular one, I couldn't. And I don't know, we hang on to these things because, you know, they're close to our heart and it's really hard to let go. That's right. You you also referred to an old handbag of your mother's. And mm-hmm. what did that do for you? Um, 
well, that's something I've hung on to a long time, and, and I'll use it occasionally. You know, it's a nice little clutch. So that's always with me. That's that's my mom with me. And, yeah, it brings back my childhood memories. I remember her carrying it, too. Right. And, and as we go through these things, um, you know, we have fond memories. We have good memories, maybe some bad memories with some things that mm-hmm. we have worn. But it's not just about things that we wear. You know, some people mm-hmm. are letting go of houses or exes or friends or um, yeah, cities. Exactly. You know, and it's not easy to let go. And why is that, that it's so difficult to transition and, and to let go of, of you? You mentioned you're not who you were when you wore the red dress. You're a different person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Letting Absolutely. go of a time of life, perhaps. Well, for sure. And um, yeah, and especially like it's even harder to let go of relationships. Um, that's, that, you know, and that's happened to me, whether it was, you know, an ex or a friend. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, we're human, right? So I, I think it's very hard. There's, it, it affects our hearts and, and we want to be, you know, um, good at relationships and, uh, Anyhow, um, yeah, I, I think that train of thought here, but <laughs> that's okay. I'll pick it up. <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, I think we've all had to let go of exes and and um, friends, and you know, mm-hmm. but there's power in that. That it's you know, if yeah. they don't no longer serve a person, or if they're treating you poorly, for example, or um, you know, for whatever reason, um, yeah. passive aggressiveness can happen, and. Mm-hmm. Um, just different issues. People can, you know, lose it and then be embarrassed that they've lost it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, but we shed the weight of those unnecessary people and yeah. unnecessary things in our lives. And, and that yeah. creates space for us. And tell me about those fresh beginnings. What What is the benefit of letting go? Well, I think, um, you know, it's, uh, we just, it's like a, a, you know, bricks off of our shoulders, right? And uh, it's really, it's it's a relief sometimes, I think, when you can let go of things. It's liberating, and it can be a transformative experience. And, and whether it's a physical possession or past regrets, like you say, um, it can, you know, hinder personal growth, and you can embrace new opportunities for this. And um, we create space for fresh beginnings. We certainly do. And, and I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I hadn't even, it was in your blog where you said mm-hmm. um, it's about releasing the attachments that no longer serve mm-hmm. us, whether they are mm-hmm. physical possessions, past regrets, or negative emotions. And all of mm-hmm. that can be tied up into relationships or they can be tied up into things that we own or, um, yeah, you know, that stuff, the, <laughs> the stuff, the stuff that yeah. doesn't, make us happy because happiness mm-hmm. comes as we all know mm-hmm. happiness comes yeah. well exactly from and i moved out of a house to a townhouse so i know what it means to let go of stuff right <laughs> and if you've been there you know right it's crazy and it's, uh, we we like to cling on to things and for some reason it gives us this comfort but once we let go of things i have to say i'm a, a self you know i i'm a big declutterer i i don't oh, like good. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like stuff. It's all good. It's trending. Trying, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's trending, but it's very hard to to do even because somehow mm-hmm. things come in. But people offer me things, and I say no, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't. I'm not. I don't want anything extra. But yeah, one somehow, thing in, one thing out. You have to do it that way, right? Yes, exactly. Or if anything is torn or has a stain on it, now we're getting into the yeah. decluttering. Um, yeah. Or you don't wear it or you haven't worn it in a certain amount of time, you know, or, yeah. or pare your closet down to 37 yeah. items. That's my goal yeah. this fall, yeah. <laughs> including shoes. Well, for sure. And there's, it's not to say that you can't keep precious things. I mean, my dress was something else, but my mother's handbag you know, I'm keeping. And as long as you have the space to keep some of these items, that's great. But if you don't and you're just hanging on to them, it it can be, you know, just, uh, yeah, like that weight on you, right? And you just need to be able to breathe and be free of that stuff. Exactly. And it's not just stuff. It it can be people in your lives as Mm -hmm. well. If you don't have Mm -hmm. the space for these people, you know, it's okay to let them go. And, yeah, and especially it, after COVID, sorry, not to, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. no, go on. 
Yeah. I was Tell just me. Say, especially after COVID. I think everyone is streamlining their friendships and really um, listening or, or trying to see who's important in their life, who's hanging around, who's not. And, and I think a lot of people are spending more time, family time, and really just streamlining that whole circle um, around them. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, and I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. And sometimes, you know, people have too many friends. And, you know, I never say you have too many, but you, you could. Well, you can. And, you know, but sometimes, you know, you don't have quality friends and it sometimes Mm -hmm. takes you a while to realize that, you know, somebody in your life wasn't a quality person, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so I think you're right. The pandemic did give us that lesson that we have to value what's really important to us and what really matters Mm -hmm. in this life and and why waste time with people who don't matter or or Mm -hmm. things things that don't matter. Exactly. Yeah, there's a yes. good um, saying, a reason, um, a reason, a season, a lifetime, um, friends, to put them in that category. And it's very true. You know, you sit and you think about where are some of those high school friends? Well, they're not around. That was, you know, maybe a season or that next door neighbor that you had that you don't see, you know, that was maybe a reason. But um, yeah, but who are your lifetime friends? I like to always look at it that way. That is true. Who are the friends that you can rely on? Who are the people that are, who mm-hmm. are genuine, who are mm-hmm. value, you know, who value your friendship with them? Who are the people who have yes. integrity? Who are the people exactly. that were, are going to be there for you uh, in times mm-hmm. of trouble? And, you know, or do they, are they just takers? Cause there's a lot of takers in this world, people who just take from others and never really give of themselves. Um, but this is not about taking. This is about giving away, <laughs> getting back to your <laughs> blog at I Covet and uh, shedding the weight yeah. of that unnecessary baggage or handbags, yeah. um, or handbags I must exactly. say. <laughs> so, uh, what inspires you to, you've done this blog for a while now, and, and what inspires yeah. you? And I have to say, I love this blog. It's fantastic. iCovet.ca if you want to read it. It's awesome. Um, thank you. Thank well, you. I'm glad you kept writing during the writer's strike. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> appreciate right? that. Yes. Oh my gosh. What inspires me? You know, I mean, I have done a bit of travel, so I've been doing a lot of travel. There was Italy and France. So that was kind of fun. It's a different kind of writing, but I do enjoy, I don't know, you just, whatever, cleaning out my closet or I'm having a conversation with a friend or my kids or um, you know, or, or my mom, who's 101, you know, what, what she oh. says and gosh, what is, what is that like for her? Um, yeah, we had so many interesting conversations and I, I just, I'm a bit of a sponge that way. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I got to, you know, I'm constantly writing notes and I have, you know, various different blogs on the go. So, um, yeah, uh, a lot of things inspire me, just simple things too. Right. Well, and everything that you write about, you know, people can relate to. These are all things that um, people can relate to from uh, leaving a relationship, leaving your home, uh, all the travels, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. your mom at 101 and, you know, cleaning out our closets, letting go. These are all such relevant subjects. And that's why I just love uh, this blog. It's just so awesome. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I and, enjoy writing it. So I, I hope everyone enjoys and has a minute to uh, have a read and let me know what you think. And I yeah. love to hear from anybody and there's something you'd like me to write about. So that would be fun. And and that's what I so appreciate about you is that you write about the everyday. You write about the pains. The everyday. You know, the heart- My everyday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the heartache. You know, it's not always a bowl yeah. of cherries. You write about the heartaches and the pains yep. and the and the joys and the revelations. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's incredible. Oh, so, thank you so much. You're so welcome, Laria. So keep it up. Keep writing. I will. I will. And maybe we'll talk about maybe some cooking next time. <laughs> Excellent idea. <laughs> I need help right. in that area. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. Sarah uh, from Alberta, <laughs> I, I think, <laughs> texted in that Carrie Richardson is an amazing author who's done tons of work around clutter. And she also looks deep into it as well. Um, yes. Sometimes when we collect a lot, it can borderline hoarder. There is a house in nearby where I live and 
this person, it's spilling out into the driveway. And, you know, oftentimes there's other reasons, deep-seated reasons why we collect so much and why we feel we have to um, keep all this stuff. But anyway, I can, I've been known to take a drawer, <laughs> maybe look at it and take out a thing of tape and say, yeah, we could use that again and then toss the rest of it, recycle the rest of it, shall I say. <laughs> um, so really, no flies on me, I'm telling you. Um, I'll give it away. <laughs> and I don't really like to have too much working on a project right now upstairs, getting rid of dresses and clothing and CWTs, as I call them, clothes with tags. Anyway, off to another subject. Sometimes you might not fit into those things, but you hope you will. And so you might try and lose some weight, but are having difficulty. Well, there's a, a bit of a study, uh, not the most robust study, but nonetheless is an association that revealed that working out at a particular time of day might be best for weight loss. Guess what time of day that is? Well, that is the morning. And in fact, New research suggests that morning workouts are better for weight loss. There's a number of reasons. Researchers found that people who exercised from 7 to 9 a.m. had lower BMIs, body mass index, than those who opted to exercise later in the day. So should you try and work out in the morning, especially if you're trying to lose weight? But it's also great for mental health, working out and getting up and getting going first thing in the morning. It is a great thing to do if you can do it, if it doesn't impact with your work or your life or, or whatever. But they these morning workouts may be more effective for weight loss than getting your steps in at later times in the day. And one of the things about this study showed that that was published in obesity, um, showed that you may actually if you don't work out in the morning, you might not do it for the rest of the day. So that's one reason why this works out better <laughs> is that you actually do it. So the study that was published in obesity used data from 2003 to 2006 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. It included exercise, eating, and lifestyle habits of 5,285 adults who were at least 20 years old. And people wore, the people in the study wore accelerometers to capture their activity levels. Researchers found that those who did moderate to vigorous exercise in the morning, specifically between 7 and 9 a.m., had lower body mass indexes, or as I said, BMIs than those people who exercised at midday or in the evening. I used to like to exercise after dinner. And I had this theory that, you know, you had your dinner and then you just burned it off. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, I'll exercise any time of the day. But I do go swimming early in the morning, 7.30. Um, so that, obviously, that is helpful. So that is great. The other thing, and and you know what, I do this as a routine and we we were going at 8.30 and I pushed it back to 7.30. I've gone as early as 6.30 in the ocean, mind you. But um, yes, it's chilly. <laughs> it's cold, let me tell you. But I really don't like, I have a wetsuit. I don't really like to wear a wetsuit. So I don't don that wetsuit until well into the winter time. But anyway, um, I just don't like putting on the wetsuit, taking it off, blah, blah. But anyway, people who work out in the morning, and, and this goes for me, uh, are more likely to work out at the same time every day. And so, yeah, you kind of commit to it and you do it at the same time every day and you schedule it. Whereas if you're loosey goosey and you're all over the place, you know, you know, you may or may not. And then if you work out in the morning and then you get an opportunity to do something in the afternoon, you might do that as well. So you might have a couple of times where you have worked out during the day. And people who work out in the morning actually consume fewer calories, according to this particular study, than those who worked out later on. But when you work out in the morning, it definitely sets the tone for the rest of your day. You do feel fairly accomplished. <laughs> wow, I did that. That is amazing. Um, and you know, you've got it done, you've got energy, it helps you to focus more closely on life in general, and also on your food choices as well. And if you work out in the morning, your only focus now is on the diet. If you're planning to lose weight or your nutrition plan, if that's your goal for working out. Um, so you get to focus on that as well. A small body of research also suggests that engaging in morning exercise while fasting, and a lot of people are doing fasting these days, that may suppress your appetite. So 
of course, you would consume fewer calories in the day as well. We definitely need more research on this topic. This is literally just a suggestion. Try it. See how it works for you. See how you feel. See if you sleep better. That's something else is a lot of people um, exercise later on in the day. But if you get up early and you hit the gym, pound the pavement, dive into the ocean, whatever, um, you know, you're tired by the end of the day, you know, and you sleep really well. Um, and it's not de- definitely, it's not always about the calories that you consume and eating fewer calories isn't always the best. It's actually good to eat frequently throughout the day. And just, you know, it's the food choices that you make good, healthy food choices. But if you need to consult a nutritionist, that is not a bad idea. Although, um, I did see some bad nutrition, nutritionist advice, um, for, um, uh, blanket on his name. Anyway, um, which I won't even go into. Anyway, I digress. Um, but you may want to speak to your doctor or nutritionist before you start on a new exercise plan or a new, uh, weight loss plan as well, because you know, your health matters so much. And, um, and this is so important, but it's easy to skip workouts as your day progresses. Think about it, fatigue, other commitments get in the way. So get that morning workout in, at least you're getting in a workout. If you have some other benefits, that is awesome, but there's just an association here. So this is not, um, etched in stone. We're going to be talking about misinformation and disinformation and also both sidesism with none other than Timothy Caulfield. He holds a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He's a professor, faculty of law and School of Public Health and Research Director, Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. His Twitter feed is at Caulfield, or his Twitter handle is at Caulfield Tim, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm doing well and and thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you today about what I think is just an incredibly important topic. It is so important. And I did see and read the article that you posted on Twitter X, (laughs) shall I say, Um, I'm, I'm having difficulty transitioning to that X, but nonetheless, um, you know, about this misinformation, this disinformation, that it's still a problem and it has done and is continuing to do serious harm. And, and we saw this rise out of the pandemic. So, you know, in general, why is misinformation so dangerous? Well, you know, I, in that piece, and, and I've said this many times in other places, it's killing people. And, and that sounds like hyperbole, but it, it isn't at all. Um, the, the head of the FDA over the past year has said on several occasions that, that he believes misinformation is actually contributing to the erosion in life expectancy in the United States, which is at a 25-year low. I mean, that's, that's horrifying, but I think the, the data supports that. And it's not just in the context of vaccines, but yes, that's a, a, big, a big part of the story. Uh, we're seeing misinformation across the, the health sphere. You know, you work in this space, you see it probably every, every single day. And, and I think our, our incredibly chaotic information environment, which is becoming more chaotic and more confused, every day is just making it incredibly challenging to tackle this this issue. Um, so yeah, uh, misinformation, a, a, a really massive, massive problem that is doing incredible harm. It is. And you know, you've focused a lot on the pandemic. I mean, there were lots of things, um, lots of what I would consider misinformation, like there's a microchip in the vaccine. I had people, legitimate, intelligent people text, uh, texting me or sending me articles about um, microchips. You know, 40% of people in Israel um, have been, have a microchip after the vaccine, um, 5G technology caused the pandemic, um, and that the vaccines are killing thousands or, or another one increasing infertility. I mean, we know that the data supports that those people who were not vaccinated, um, they're actually, they have a higher hospitalization rate and also increased risk of death as well. There's more deaths in states in the U.S. that were not vaccinated, not largely vaccinated. 
but I also see it on social media and drives me crazy in terms of medical things, just general medical things and really largely around women's health and, you know, largely around sexual health or bladder and bowel health um, and people trying to sell devices, non-medical people trying to sell devices or you know, to vulnerable women who want an answer, who might be waiting a few months to get in to see their doctor or their doctor doesn't have expertise in a particular area. So I agree with you. This is so, this is such a problem. And yes, you can see where the um, lifespan is decreasing uh, for people. What are some of the biggest issues? What's some of the biggest bunk and myths that has come out of the uh, pandemic? Well, you know, you've touched on some of them and in, there are this idea that the that the vaccines are doing harm, and and why is that so huge? Well, it, it's the, the degree to which it has become entrenched is amazing. In fact, it's almost become an ideological position. We're seeing this in the United States, but we're also seeing it here in Canada. So, what do I mean by that? You see, you know, states like Florida that have taken almost an official uh, position against the vaccines, despite the you know the mountains of evidence that, that suggests that that position is is wrong uh and, and we've seen the the skepticism around the covid vaccine seep into other domains and, and that's what, why we know it's it's going to be a problem long term let me just give you two examples both of them you know really one absurd and one is you know heartbreaking uh the absurd one also uh, heartbreaking because i'm such a a pet fan um <laughs> is that in the United States, 50% of pet owners now have some degree of skepticism uh, towards vaccinating their their dog, even for something like rabies, right? Wow. And, and the the authors, this is incredible, right? And the authors of that study, and I actually uh, know them, suggest that this is a direct result of the skepticism around vaccines that that emerged during the pandemic. So think about that. People aren't vaccinating their dogs and in part, Maureen, it's because they worry about dog autism, if you can believe it. So it's, you know, it's absurd. <laughs> it's scientifically implausible. Uh, but it really is a powerful example of the degree to which misinformation is having an impact on, on people's lives. And that's 50% Maureen, of, of dog owners in the United States. And the that's other just example. just unbelievable. I mean, yeah, I believe it's un- you. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> um, uh, and the other example, which is is you know maddening, heartbreaking, um, you know infuriating, is we're seeing um, increased skepticism around childhood vaccination, right? So you're seeing yeah. um, fewer children being vaccinated, um, and we're seeing fewer pregnant women, you know, or, or at least an increase in vaccination hesitancy among pregnant women. So we know that's going to do real harm. It's it, as I said off the top, it's it's going to kill people. It is. It's just incredible. And it's also injuring people's lives as well or harming relationships. I know a number of people in my clinical practice who have actually split up because one of the partners became a conspiracy theorist. And and, and it just became almost obsessive compulsive. And and they could no longer live together. The the person, you know, there's two that come to mind. And it's just to, you know, to think that somebody believes this misinformation that is oftentimes advocated by these renowned anti-vaccination people or even high-profile physicians, which causes so much damage. People grab onto a headline or a bit of the information and they take it away or they're just repeating things that they may have heard from a friend or something that they saw on social media that has been pushed by social media influencers. I have a lot of problems with social media influencers, especially people who have no medical background, who are selling products or selling malarkey, (laughs) if you will, and really causing big harm. We see athletes doing that as well uh, we, we sure do and, and we know that um influencers celebrities uh individual anti-vaxxers with a, a large anti-vax brand um have an influence um and some people will say, oh I don't, I don't listen to aaron Rodgers; he doesn't really have an impact on my life but we know that that they do because they they control the public narrative. They they put the misinformation out there, and even if you don't necessarily believe it coming out of the mouth of Gwyneth Paltrow or Aaron Rodgers, uh, it, it becomes part of the pop culture ether, and it has an impact. 
And, you know, we've measured this uh, with studies in, in a, a number of domains, so we, we know that this really does matter. And by the way, that's why it's really important to debunk stuff, even if it seems absurd and silly. As you noted off the top, who would have believed that such a huge portion of the population would believe the microchip thing? <laughs> you know, that exactly. That micro- I remember when it first started, people laughed about that. They laughed about the 5G thing. And then three years later, we've seen study after study after study has shown that a sizable proportion of the Canadian pop- population is at least open to this absurd idea. And yeah. it does real harm. So, the, you know, one of the messages uh, is, you know, debunk it. Even if it comes from a celebrity and even if it's absurd, we still need, you know, experts to, to point us in the right path. Timothy Caulfield, he's my guest. He's professor of law of Faculty of Law and School of Public Health at the University Alberta of Alberta. And he likes to debunk myths, especially around the COVID vaccine. You'll find him on Twitter at, at Caulfield Tim. Thanks so much for staying on the line. Tim, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. For those of you who've just joined us, we're talking about this misinformation that's out there that seems to spread like wildfire. wildfire. We have lots of ways that happens with uh, easy access to social media. Um, People just spread lies and they just want to lom onto them and believe them. And quite frankly, it is killing us, as Timothy Caulfield has mentioned. Um, What do we do about this problem? You mentioned that it's important that we debunk the myths. And I'm glad that you said that because I do post comments on Instagram typically where people are, you know, dissing misinformation out there left, right, and center. And I will say a very respectful little response, like, you know, um, purchasing a $200 device is not medical care for women, um, which I did today. But how do we battle this? How do we combat this? Especially given that COVID cases are on the rise, we're heading indoors, it's the fall, and also the vaccines are on the horizon as well. Well, there's sort of a good news Bad news <laughs> side to to uh, to this debunking story. You know, I'm ever the optimist. You know, I'm a glass half full kind of kind of person, and I I I like to believe we can we can make a difference. And so the good news is more and more entities around the world, whether you're talking about the UN, the World Health Organization, really every nation state, every you know health authority recognizes that battling misinformation is is important. It's it's key. You know, there was a fascinating study that came out um, at the late last year that that found that uh, most people in the world rank fighting misinformation right up there with climate change. It's right below climate change is one of the greatest threats uh, to humanity. So people are really recognizing this as a problem. So that's good news. The second thing is we have more and more research. Uh, about how to fight this, right? You know, I've been working in this area for really decades, and I've never seen as much, you know, really good big studies as I've seen over the last couple of years. And uh, so we're starting to get a good sense of how to fight it, right? So how to debunk it, how do, you know, we have to pre-bunk, we have to debunk, we have to teach critical thinking, and yes, we have to take some steps to to regulate this space. So we, we can make a difference. The bad news, the scary stuff, is that more and more of this is becoming about ideology. Uh, and once it becomes about ideology, once it becomes sort of about your personal worldview, your personal identity, it, it is more difficult to change people's minds. And we have, you know, politicians who are adopting misinformation as part of their platform. And we have, you know, thousands of, mil- really millions of people following Following these individuals, I mean, just think about the big lie in the United States, which is, you know, the idea that the uh, the Trump uh, voter fraud uh, conspiracy, 60 to 70 percent of Republicans believe that. I mean, it's just incredible, right? And it's, even though it's been debunked over and over again. So that ideological component of it is going to make fighting misinformation more difficult, and unfortunately, all the misinformation, including health misinformation, Maureen, is becoming more about ideology. Um, despite all that, I think there are things we can do, and something I've become very passionate about is fighting false balance, fighting both sidism. Uh, and what do I mean by that? You know, highlighting what the scientific consensus really says. And I know I'm going on a little bit here. Uh, no, Maureen, go ahead. This is really, really important. Carry on. Let me just give you. Let me give you this one example. There was a study that, uh, that came out from uh, Europe not th- this year, just, just very, very recently, 
that found that 90% of, of individuals believe that there is not a consensus um, it, among physicians about the COVID vaccine. And in fact, four out of five individuals, four to five individuals, think that the medical profession is split or undecided about the value of vaccines. In reality, there's almost universal consensus among right. physicians about the value and the safety and the efficacy of the COVID vaccine. And if you tell that, if you explain that to individuals, you really can make a difference, right? There's these very few, very loud, you know, uh, cr uh, cranks, we'll call them, that are, are spreading misinformation <laughs> about about the vaccines that are having an outsized impact on public perception. And if we can counter that, we can make a real difference. We absolutely have to counter that. It is a huge ship to turn around. And sometimes I think people will have these beliefs or, or this ideology that really doesn't impact them or it doesn't impact anybody that they're, you know, close with or that they care about. Um, and it just doesn't seem to matter to them. You can try and educate them and, they're still going to have their own ideas and not even bother. There's a, there's a bit of an apathy too about getting people on board with this, I think. Um, but it, it's just so difficult. So how do we pre-bunk these myths? Yeah, pre-bunk. There's been a lot of really interesting research on pre-bunking uh, um, recently, and and uh, you know, I'm, which is great, and, and it's shown that it, it really can make a difference. So what pre-bunking pre is is making people aware. Uh, that misinformation is going to be coming on, the, on a particular topic, and these are the strategies that are going to be used. In other words, mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of inoculating individuals to the misinformation that's going to come. So let me give you an example. Uh, we are going to introduce um, a particular therapy. I won't, I won't even say vaccines. <laughs> We're going to introduce a particular therapy, <laughs> and you're going to hear anecdotes about potential harm. It's important for you to recognize that an anecdote is not... Um, real data, you need to look at the body of evidence. And if you do that, you kind of inoculate people to the strategies that are used to spread misinformation, you can make a difference. People become sensitized and they become more critical when that information passes their, you know, over, through their radar. And that's one of the problems, Maureen, right? Our information environment is so chaotic. It's so, you know, frantic that people don't pause. And that's the other thing we can do. Another pre-bunking strategy is just reminding people to pause to take a beat yeah. before Absolute. they sort of internalize the information or share it. Just that one simple thing, Maureen. Research has shown Gordon Pennycook, did fantastic research on this. He's at Cornell now, has found that one simple strategy can make a real difference. Absolutely. The other thing I think that's missing that I see from social media, from influencers, is the critical thinking. They don't have them. Unfortunately, we've got to go to break. We're up against the clock. But should we all just relax? Tell me about your upcoming book. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my next book uh, by uh, uh, Penguin Canada should be out, I think, early 2024, where I really tackle, you know, our chaotic information environment and the many ways that it pushes uh, misinformation, lies, and of course, of course, what we can all do uh, to fight that problem. And the book is called Relax, A Guide to Everyday Health Decisions with More Facts and Less Worry. Thank you so much, Tim. I really enjoyed having you on the program. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.